What the hell made you want to start a band in the first place? Well, it's, also, it's something we've always wanted to do. I guess ever since, you know, uh, well, I know ever since, since I've seen the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or something, I wanted to do this, you know. And, uh, and also you want to kind of, we were kind of disgusted with the music we were hearing also in America on the radio. Everything's kind of very uh, fabricated and uh, it's not real anymore. It's not out from the gut and soul anymore. And you want to do something about changing it and making things better, which uh, since the time we came out, things have totally changed and have gotten better in a lot of senses, you know, as far as a whole like new wave of new music by people who do care, who want to see change and see something, uh, see music being better, you know. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanala. And I'm Leonard Vaut. And on this episode, we're talking about punk, the global voice of resistance. When we were coming up with the idea for this episode, we were initially looking at protest music, and in particular, protest music against the Vietnam War. But then, when you search protest music, punk comes up. And the more we actually started reading into punk, the more we realized that it wasn't just defined by this one genre. There was so much more to it than what initially meets the eye. So we'll be looking at punk in in three parts. Firstly, we'll be looking at what punk exactly is and why is it that it can mean so many different things to different people. Then we'll be looking at how this idea of punk spread around the world. Firstly, looking at how it went from the US and the UK into Eastern Europe and what kind of features of the movement made that possible. And lastly, we'll be looking at the case of Iran, where the underground music scene there has many complex portrayals and we'll be understanding what exactly were the motivations of underground musicians in the country. to us about the idea of punk is Kevin Dunn, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and also the author of Global Punk, Resistance and Rebellion in Everyday Life. So Kevin, thank you for being here today. Just before this interview, you were telling us about how this isn't just research for you, but rather you yourself identified as a punk. So can you tell us about your own connection to punk and what motivated you to join the movement? Yeah, so um, I was uh, a young teenager growing up in a very conservative, uh, racist town in the southern part of the United States and not feeling like I fit in much. You know, much of punks are outcasts, kind of misfits. Um, and I definitely felt that in terms of my social, economic, but also my political views were very different than the kind of very conservative, racist community that I was brought up in. And then when I was introduced to some some punk music, and it was the Ramones, it was the Clash, especially the Clash, 
So, you know, things that I'd been told about that I was able to find at a, just a basic record store really turned me on to punk and resonated. And then once, you know, once it's like a gateway drug, right? Especially those early commercial punk bands like the Ramones, the Clash, the Sex Pistols. And then you learn more and more um, about the deeper undercurrents of punk and the bands that didn't get signed um, to major labels. And then the zines that were writing up and you kind of understand what's going on there, this larger kind of these sets of social activities um, just resonated deeply with me so that within a few years, um, it was very much part of my identity, not just the music that I like to listen to. I listened to lots of different music, but the ethos that was coming out of the punk scenes, and this for me was in the early to mid 80s. Um, so punk had been around for a few years, but I was early enough to be catching the early 80s version of it. And I was also very fortunate that in my my hometown, which was Jacksonville, Florida, these older kids had started the first punk band in town. Um, and I got to be friends with them. They were releasing their own music on their, you know, self-releasing on cassette tapes, making their own T-shirts. They were booking their own shows. They turned their rehearsal space uh, into a, a all-age club music venue, which was amazing because then I got to see bands like Black Flag coming through, just like amazing things. Uh, that exposed me to the larger uh, punk community. Um, and at that point, I was I was in for life. So, Kevin, one thing that kept coming up in our research is about how contested the idea of punk is. It seems like it was an idea that connected to people very differently, depending on who they were. Could you tell us about what punk is and, and what it means and to whom? Yeah, so my uh, easy way to kind of avoid that question, but I will answer that question, but to avoid that question is to really say what I'm interested in is that debate that people have about what punk is. And there's a joke, you get 10 anarchists into a room to define anarchy, you'll get 12 different definitions of anarchy from those 10 people. And punk is kind of the same way. So I'm really interested when people are sitting around debating what is or isn't punk. I'm really interested uh, in those conversations because for me, what punk is, is it's a set of social activities uh, that is constantly changing over time and place. But what's driving punk, I think at its beginning formulation in the 1970s, was that people were responding to the ways in which modern life, the kind of social, political, and economic forces in their life were these forces of alienation, that they were acting upon them and they were feeling, you know, that they didn't have agency and power, but that the world was kind of acting upon them to turn them into kind of passive consumers. It's the way modern capitalism works. And that punk was kind of a response to that to say, no, you know, we're going to push back on that. Um, so there's kind of an anti-status quo kind of, no, the world's screwed up. We're going to push back. But also that punk was an alternative that it kind of gave this form of empowerment that people could not just push back, but it gave them the tools by which they could avoid being passive consumers and start being active cultural producers, whether it's making their own music, their own zines, their own clothes, right, to building these uh, sets of social activities again, which is empowering people. So I tend to think of punk beyond just a musical form, a musical genre, 
Um, though back in the 70s, you know, there was this broad range of musical forms that were associated with that first wave of punk. Whether if you're looking at New York and you've got the Ramones, but you've also got Blondie and Talking Heads, very different bands. You know, in London, you've got the Slits uh, and the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Damn, very different sounding bands, much more eclectic sounding. But the corporate music industry was very quick to turn punk into um, a musical category or a marketing strategy. You know, three chords, buzzsaw guitars with a snotty vocal, that becomes a marketing strategy for what punk is. But for me, and I think for a lot of people within the punk communities at this point around the world, it means much more than just a certain sound of, of music, but a, a set of social activities, a way of being and acting uh, in the world. One thing that we read about a lot was the importance of do-it-yourself or DIY in the punk movement. So can you tell us about why the DIY movement has been so central to punk and how it's influenced the culture? Yeah, you know, punk didn't invent DIY culture by any stretch of the imagination, but that kind of marriage between this anti-status quo anger of what people were feeling in the 1970s and then continue to feel beyond that and then the tools of DIY culture came together very clearly in punk. Um, Johnny Rotten, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols, once quipped, anyone can be a Sex Pistol. And what he meant by that is, like, anyone can do this. Anyone, he had no formal training, you know. They were stealing their instruments and learning how to play them. Anyone can do this. It doesn't take a lot of musical uh, ability. It takes a lot of practice, definitely. But then... That's a message that gets repeated over and over again. Uh, early zines, people were making their own zines, uh, becoming their own media, becoming their own way in terms of communicating the ideas of their their uh, community, but also how they understood the world. And again, punk didn't invent zines, but the marriage between zines and punk were just beautiful and blossomed into a very rich punk culture and the editor of uh, Sniffing Glue famously quipped Mark Perry that if you don't like what we read, start your own zine. And he didn't say that in a kind of nasty way. He said that in a pick up a pen and express your own um, your own opinions, your own views. That's what punk is, right? Looking around the world and saying, if your views aren't being out there, if you don't see yourself or hear yourself in terms of music or culture, fashion, then stop waiting for someone else to make something for you. You make it for yourself. And that that marriage of DIY, I think, is actually what gave punk and continues to give punk its legs. That's why I think it continues to be relevant today in 2020 around the world in lots of different scenes is because uh, the communities, whether it's in Indonesia, whether it's in uh, Singapore, whether it's in South Africa, People are responding to their own current conditions with the tools of kind of, kind of anti-status quo and then the DIY ethos of punk and making punk fit their own needs and kind of expressing their own desires. And so it's, and it's kind of interesting how all these communities are connected to each other and feeding off each other in really interesting ways. And so, Kevin, you touched a little upon the idea of commercial punk and one thing that struck me is that it seems like, you know, big labels coming in and signing artists detach them from this original context that was about kind of being anti-status quo and anti-system. And would you say that this commercialization of the movement perhaps made punk a victim of its own success? 
That's a really good question. And uh, it's hard to imagine actually how punk would have developed if that hadn't happened, right? Because then you've got the corporate music industry coming in and signing a bunch of bands uh, like the Ramones to Sire, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, you know, the whole the whole list of bands get signed on and the scene gets appropriated and you learn the lessons of exploitative capitalism, right? And and so the whole kind of community is like, oh, that's what happens. You can't trust the major labels. And we keep learning this over and over again. But after that, that kind of first wave, there's that reaction to uh, the creation of what you could talk about as this commercial punk, right? So, the Clash signed to CBS. And so then someone like me in Jacksonville, Florida, gets a Clash album and his life has changed. But then bands like Crass and a bunch of other bands respond and say, absolutely not. That's a sellout. We're going to double down on this DIY underground ethos. And that's where I think it, you have this emerging independent DIY culture that is that drives punk. And at the surface, you have these commercial bands and it keeps happening. And, and it's interesting when you've got bands that cross over. So bands that are adamantly independent and say they'll never sign to a major label. And then they sign to a major label. I'm thinking of Jawbreaker. I'm thinking of Anti-Flag. And then they get burned and we learn the lesson over and over again. But those bands become gateway drugs almost for lots of kids who, you know, listen to Blink-182 or Jawbreaker or Anti-Flag, and then in the liner notes, learn about other bands, uh, and then they go deeper. And that was that was true for me. That's been true for so many people uh, I've talked to. I mean, very few people that I know who are punks became punks because the very first moment they picked up a Minor Threat or a Fugazi album. It was something else that got them there, and then poof, their, their minds were blown. But it's also a fun game to play with lots of punks around the world as to what is and isn't punk and is is Rancid a punk band or did Rancid sell out? You know, these bands that become commercial punk, where do we draw the line? And a lot of that is within punk. And this is not true, just true for punk. This is true for a lot of musical genres in which their identities are tied up very closely, whether it's jazz or country music, you know, is that insider outsider, what is real country? What is true jazz? What is real punk? And those kind of games that we play performances is about inside outsider and trying to define and preserve authenticity for the specific community. So with all this being said, what place would you say punk has today? Yeah, I would say, and again, I have a luxury of being able to travel around the world um, and doing interviews with punks around the world. Uh, punk is alive. It is well. It is super strong. And it is definitely global. I mean, there's, I spend time in Indonesia and the scene in Indonesia is so strong, but also so diverse uh, in, in across Europe, um, uh, in the United States. It's underground. I mean, there's house shows any given moment of time before the pandemic. Uh, there were house shows going on. There was this uh, very vital, very rich and globally connected uh, DIY punk scenes around the world that were doing really important work for each of those communities, right? In Indonesia, whether it's Jakarta or 
or Bandung, or even in neighborhoods of Jakarta, how punk is functioning um, is re really important. Probably, again, uh, in 2020, I, I like to think about this, is that we're now facing some really incredibly difficult and challenging times with a global pandemic. But this, this is what punk has been training us for for decades. You know, how do you build a community? How do you create alternative ways of being? How do you structure uh, communities of care and giving and um, sensibility? Well, that's that's what DIY Punk has been doing for decades. So the ways uh, in which I'm looking around the world and seeing DIY Punk communities um, responding to the pandemic has been kind of reaffirming because yeah, we we've we've been doing this. You know, the the, the major structures are breaking down. That's okay. We, we have our own. We have our own infrastructure. We have our own ways of, of, of being and doing and challenging and, and being alternatives to the, the status quo. Again, this ethos of doing it yourself, but also doing it within a community and taking care of each other. I think the, the skills that punk has been teaching us for, for decades, or we've been teaching ourselves through punk for decades, is uh, extremely relevant you know, right now around the world. Trouble with this town. Trouble never happens Give me some gasoline Box of matches And I'll make you laugh And I'll make you scream I'll give this town The party it needs And so with that really fascinating introduction by Kevin, you can really see how punk wasn't just this single cohesive movement, but it was actually lived in a really complex way. You had different people understanding the movement in their own personal ways. And of course, this was all brought together by the same thread of, of being anti-status quo. But that meant very different things to different people. Exactly. And punk starts off in the US and the UK, and it becomes a global phenomenon. And then when you look at it in the context of the 70s and 80s, this Cold War period where there is this division between capitalists and communists, you see that despite that, punk connected young people across the world. And so to talk to us about the spread of the punk movement is Raymond Patton, faculty member at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and author of Punk Crisis, The Global Punk Rock Revolution. Thank you so much for being with us for this episode, Ray. We wanted to start things off by looking at the central question in your book about punk as this transnational and, and global phenomenon. And of course, as Yusuf mentioned, we have this very divided political landscape in the period where punk comes into being. And we wanted to ask you, you know, what were the reasons that punk was able to be so successful across all kinds of political boundaries and ideologies? Sure. Um, I, I think your question really captures sort of the, the heart of the paradox there that um, there is something like a global uh, a global political landscape in the 1970s, um, despite the very different systems. Uh, keep in mind, this is at the height of the Cold War world. So sort of in conventional wisdom, uh, the world is divided between the capitalist first world, the communist second world, which are uh, mortal enemies and basically uh, separate from each other, opposites in many ways. And then of course the non-aligned third world, the global South. The whole idea that uh, 
in the 1970s, there are some commonalities developing between these systems. Um, it was certainly surprising to uh, to the communist elites in the second world who saw punk coming over from the capitalist world and couldn't imagine what it could mean in the second world. Looking back, though, we can really see the 1970s as the beginning of the era of globalization. So if you look at what's happening in the 1970s, in the first world, second world, and third world, there is basically an economic slowdown. Uh, the the, the post-war economic growth in the first and second world of the 1950s and 60s that had allowed states like the UK, the US, uh, the Eastern Bloc, all experiencing basically constant growth, constant building uh, and growing economies. This allowed them to um, basically have contracts in place with their societies that allowed them to continue having capitalism in the West, having inequality because they're able to meet the basic needs of workers, guaranteed employment, uh, social benefits. In the East, uh, in addition to guaranteed employment, the, the state basically bases its legitimacy increasingly in the 1960s, 1970s on its ability to provide goods to people, to provide food at, uh, at reasonable prices. When you have uh, an economic crisis in the 1970s, when the growth stops, this, uh, this makes that compromise no longer possible. So all these states as diverse as the UK uh, in the first world, Poland in the second world, and then Jamaica or Peru in the third world are all facing these crises that are not only economic, but sort of bring down the, uh, the post-war consensus-based uh, political systems that had, had structured politics um, during the past 20 years. So there's massive social unrest in all of these places. There are strikes in the UK, strikes in Poland, and not just workers, but bringing out people from um, all, all over society. It's incredibly disruptive. So governments fall. The Callahan government falls in the UK. The, the uh, Girek government falls in Poland, is replaced by the Kenya government, which then falls. Um, so there's an atmosphere of crisis across the first and second and third world, hence the title of the book, um, Punk Crisis. Uh, it's very disruptive, and it also has a really concrete effect on young people for whom um, there are no longer as many opportunities available in terms of employment. I would add, in addition to the, uh, the economic crisis, there's also an existential sense of crisis. Um, so President Carter in the United States speaks of a crisis of confidence, even though the United States is better off than uh, the UK and Poland, economically speaking. Um, in Poland, the word crisis is appearing in this time period so often that uh, one of the first punk bands, Krizis, Crisis, uh, actually makes its, its advertisements from press cuttings of the word crisis that it finds in the news. Neither the left nor the right seems to have an answer to this crisis, at least at first. The traditional left is, um, is discredited in the UK. I mentioned the Callaghan government falls, the, uh, the labor government. Uh, in Poland, the, the Communist Party, traditionally sort of the bastion of the working class, uh, is totally discredited, um, all but totally discredited by the end of the 1970s. So there's not a clear uh, new direction um, for, for politics in both of these countries. There's a sense of ideological uncertainty um, leading to the beginnings of what will be a political orientation, um, is, is what my book argued. The third and final element I'd like to argue uh, uh, is a similarity in the East and the West is, despite really different economies and different music industries in a lot of respects, uh, there are some similarities in that both in the communist world 
and in the 1970s sort of progressive rock dom dominated music scene in the West, in the US, in the UK in the 1970s, it's a really tough environment for new performers to break in. Both in the East and the West, recordings are dominated by big name established performers that recording studios, uh, record companies can guarantee are going to sell large amounts of records and get them profits. So it's really hard to get in the door. Um, so a DIY do-it-yourself culture like punk uh, is really critical for anyone who wants to get into the music scene in the 1970s. Uh, despite these common landscape, this common global landscapes, there are some major differences, of course. Uh, in Eastern Europe, you have a, a socialist economy. Uh, the music scene uh, and the music industry are oriented quite differently from in, from in the West. Um, and even within the Eastern Bloc, you have differences between states. So Poland, compared to, say, the Soviet Union, has a really explosive punk scene because in Poland, um, there are a few factors like, one, in Poland, there's no official distinction between an official band and an unofficial band, which means bands can sort of use some of the resources of the state to grow while maintaining a degree of independence to a degree that they can't do in the Soviet Union. So we have this big punk movement, but what about the people behind it, the actual pioneers like the Sex Pistols and X-Ray Specs? What was it about these people's personal lives that drove them to create the punk movement in the first place? I should add that uh, I'm really glad you're asking this question. Um, it's important to remember that there are individuals behind punk. That's in fact, it's people that are driving it, right? Not, um, not just these massive impersonal conditions uh, that I spoke to in my previous answer. Every punk is different, um, so it's 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 impossible to tell a single story that captures everyone's experience. Uh, and one of the things um, that is true about the punk community today is it's very unpunk to sort of make generalizations, to speak for other people, to talk as though there's some kind of universal punk experience. Uh, so a lot of accounts of punk, of punk are just basically collections of individuals sharing their own stories and their own experiences. That said, uh, I wanted to draw out some of the sort of the similarities that emerge between these individuals, which is what I do uh, a lot in my book. So I, I'm aware of, uh, of that tension. When, what I found when I looked at uh, the stories of a lot of punks in the UK, the US, and in the East, there, there are a couple of factors that they often have in common. One, I would point to a lot of punks were in one way or another outsiders uh, in the place where they're operating. Often, specifically, punks are immigrants. I think to a degree that hasn't been fully appreciated or recognized in scholarship of punk, uh, there's a big connection between the immigrant experience and being punk. In many bands, uh, at least one of the members, often more, are immigrants. Uh, to, to use an example uh, of one of the bands you named, Polystyrene from X-Ray Specs, uh, her father was Somali. So she's part Somali of mixed nationality, mixed race, um, also, she's a woman. So in all these respects in the UK in the 1970s, she's a bit of, uh, of an outsider in terms of mainstream politics, in terms of the kind of people who are being sort of supported and promoted by the rock music industry. This makes punk uh, more appealing to someone like her uh, in a way. And, and where I first encountered, uh, encountered X-Ray Specs is through their involvement with rock against racism. So you might imagine why someone who's part Somali in the UK in the late 1970s, when the radical racist right wing is rising again, 
why something like Rock Against Racism and the alliance that it forms with some punk bands, uh, why that would appeal to someone like Polystyrene. Uh, the other band you mentioned, the Sex Pistols, the outsider connection might not seem as obvious, but it's actually there as well. Uh, so John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, uh, is very conscious of his Irish identity as someone living in London. Um, so the, the title of his biography, No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs, kind of captures that. Also, his sense is being from the working class, but not having a working class job. So he doesn't really fit with the working class either. Um, even uh, for individuals who weren't immigrants themselves, the connection with immigrant culture, like reggae, most obviously. Reggae is hugely influential with the Sex Pistols, with The Clash, uh, a lot of punk bands, Two-Tone later, especially the, the individual Donovan Letts, who's from a Jamaican family. He becomes the, the, the DJ at the Roxy. He plays reggae in between punk sets. Uh, really influential to a lot of punks. He also runs Acme Apparel, influential in uh, in punk style. So the 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 third world immigrant experience also um, filters into punk in a lot of ways. And, and finally, it's true of punk in Eastern Europe. Um, so the the East European punk scene experiences the the music of punk in part through John Porter, uh, who comes from the UK. Going the other direction, you have Valak Zedze, Nina Hagen both punks who move from the East to the West. Uh, Nina Hagen ends up hanging out with Ari Up from the Slits, another immigrant. So was uh, Paloma, uh, Paul Mollive from, from the Slits. Um, one of the questions uh, I, I ask is, so why is there this, this connection so often to immigrants, uh, immigrant communities, the immigrant experience? A piece of it, I think, is probably demographic in that punk happens first in some of the global urban centers where there are large immigrant communities new ideas, new forms of culture are circulating there. I also think there's something to this idea that punk works well among people who know what it's like to be an outsider. They come at society from a different perspective. They see society for the absurdities that it is demonstrating. Um, they're, they're not uh, accustomed to just taking what they see for granted. Also, punk doesn't require a huge acquaintance with the national cultural uh, canon. It's all about tearing things up, starting anew. So immigrants are are, are well placed um, for that in a lot of ways. The second major uh, commonality I would point to is an interest in art and aesthetics. Uh, so punks are often really creative people. Um, it's been observed before that a lot of punks have backgrounds in art school. Punk's initially as much about style as it is about music. Um, this isn't a particularly new observation either, but uh, one of the things I found in my approach uh, in my book is that uh, this is also true in Eastern Europe. So it's an art gallery in Warsaw, Poland, uh, Riviera Ramont, connected to Warsaw Polytechnic. That's one of the main places where punk really picks up. A lot of the early punks are, are, are also interested in the visual arts. Um, there are sociological reasons for this, I think, in that uh, art school is a good place for creative people who are not interested in a conventional career in you know, being a lawyer or a Communist Party member. But there are also really concrete and tangible uh, connections to the avant-garde art scenes in both the East and the West. So you have individuals in avant-garde art who are already transnationally connected, and they often play a big role in inviting punk bands to come and play. So the band Generation X gets invited to do one of its earlier performances at an art gallery in the UK. 
punk bands in Poland. A lot of them are playing at art galleries in, in Warsaw, in Gdansk, uh, in Wrocław. Um, so all the communication that's taking place across the, the arts, in addition to the, the sort of art, artistic and aesthetic uh, resonance of punk, make that often a common experience across punks everywhere. Never I go walking by, no one's gonna catch my eye, got barbed wire in my underpants, barbed wire in my underpants, all the girls are scared to death, never gonna take a chance, got barbed wire in my underpants, barbed wire in my underpants. And so, Ray, could you take us through the journey that punk makes from the UK and the US towards Eastern Europe? Particularly, what kind of networks were in place across these different countries and how were they used to spread the movement? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so there's kind of a, a conventional story usually about popular culture, about you have uh, popular culture emerging from this intersection often of, uh, of black culture and white culture in the U.S. Then it spreads to, um, to port cities in Europe, eventually making its way to, uh, to Eastern Europe and also spreading to the third world. Um, what I found happening with punk, some of that story rings true. There are also connections that move in all sorts of other directions though. So you have culture going from West to East, but you also have influences and networks that connect the South to the West, that connect the South to the East. So the Soviet Union, the socialist world has all these connections to radical movements in the global South. Um, so you have exchange students from Africa who are bringing things like reggae to Eastern Europe, to Poland, uh, that's already sort of circ circulating and percolating within Poland. Uh, in the previous question, I mentioned these, uh, these international avant-garde networks. These are hugely important. Immigrants are a huge, uh, a huge piece in global networking here. I mentioned John Porter earlier. Uh, he he's Welsh, lives in the uh, in the UK for a while, decides he doesn't feel like he belongs there, kind of an outsider, goes east, heads to the Soviet Union, then to Poland. He ends up joining a band called Manam, which becomes one of the first bands to really popularize punk in sort of uh, some of the mainstream um, circles. So they get radio play, they get music videos, uh, but they turn their music from sort of a more traditional rock sound toward punk, uh, in part because um, John Porter comes and brings some punk sounds to the East. Also, many of the punks in Eastern Europe have family members who live abroad. So Robert Brilevsky, I mentioned the band Krizis earlier. Uh, Brilevsky's in Krizis. He's also in the later Brigada Krizis, also later in a reggae band Israel, huge figure in Polish punk. His father lives in the United States and sends him recordings from the U.S., I'd also point to the influence of reggae. Uh, so the culture of the third world, it's huge in the UK, but I also mentioned um, reggae is big in Eastern Europe. Uh, and you have bands like Misty and Roots that tour, um, they tour the UK. They're connected also to the music circuit of the socialist world. They play at the Intervision Festival, which is like the alternative to Eurovision. Um, they're involved in rock against racism in the UK. They also tour Poland and the Soviet Union. So there are these transnational music networks that are in place in the 1970s that, uh, that sort of defy this idea of the Iron Curtain. And finally, um, the punk community itself. Uh, so punks do an amazing job of creating their own global networks. Um, in particular, I'd point to the magazine Maximum Rock and Roll. They have contacts in countries around the world, a, a global reach. It's incredible. 
uh, and there are actually issues of their their punk zine um, that show you know punks talking about what's happening in Poland, uh, what's happening in Latin America, and looking at these authoritarian regimes and finding commonalities with with what's happening to them in the UK or in the United States. Um, so punks are really able to make these connections and see connections across these boundaries that seem so solid in, in the Cold War world. When people talk about punk, they often refer to the crazy fashion sense, the loud music, this overall disruption to society. But what would you say is the actual legacy of punk for the world? Right. Um, first of all, I would say a lot. Um, as you mentioned, uh, looking at punk and the way that it it engages with major sort of political questions, that it really riles up politicians. Uh, so you have members of parliament debating punk in 1976. You have the U.S. Senate debating punk in the 1980s in the U.S. In Poland, you have the division of culture of the Communist Party debating punk, trying to figure out what it means. They're all convinced that it means something. In some cases, they think it, you know, it represents the end of, uh, of the world around them, the end of modern civilization. Uh, and societies around the world also react strongly to punk. So it must have meant something. Yet, uh, on the flip side, whenever, uh, whenever people try to sort of assess what the, what the sociopolitical significance of punk is, uh, so often we end up looking ridiculous. That's one of the challenges about punk uh, is it's deceptively simple. Uh, as soon as people start trying to make claims about punk bringing down communism or being a challenge to capitalism, or uh, being a force in fighting against racism or fighting uh, for gender equality or gender bending, somebody else can come up with a counterexample and show, no, actually punks were misogynist. Punks were actually racist. Punks actually uh, were a safety vent. It didn't bring down communism. It helped the government shore up their power. Uh, so seemingly, whatever we try to say about the sociopolitical uh, relevance of punk ends up um, coming back in one's face. It also often fails to capture what made punk so meaningful to so many of the people that performed it, practiced it, believed in it. Um, once it starts becoming a sociological movement, it starts becoming less like punk. That said, I do want to claim some sociopolitical relevance for punk. Um, the way I do this uh, is a bit different. Um, so my argument is that punk arises from this major shift that happens in the 1970s through the 1980s out of a Cold War world that's really defined by ideology and toward a new sort of world that's globalizing and is defined more by identity. Um, not so much about economics, more about culture. So punk is both part of, grows out of, and also contributes to this broader global sort of socio-political realignment. Um, through this process, political identities are getting scrambled. So I already mentioned that the working class in the UK, in the US, in Poland, no longer automatically identifies with the traditional conventional left. This is the beginning of the rise of a new right. Uh, in the er late 70s, early 1980s, you have a new right that's, uh, that bases its identity not so much on old aristocratic elite culture, but rather uh, being conservative, culturally conservative. And this actually picks up support from a lot of the working class. 
punk grows in this environment and really uh, throws a wrench into sort of the political categories that exist in the Cold War world. So the working class does not uh, immediately embrace punk. In fact, uh, a lot of sort of the quarters of traditional support um, from the working class, a lot of sort of the, the labor politicians or Democrats in the U.S. can't find a lot in punk that they identify with. You have the beginning of the rise of a new right that really looks at punk and seeks to exploit the controversy around punk to establish itself as sort of this bastion of order, tradition, traditional values. Uh, Thatcher rises through this in a lot of ways. Reagan in the U.S. Um, so, so punk, I argue, spurs this global realignment. Uh, ideology, being a, cons uh, being a communist or a capitalist, uh, is no longer so important. What matters is, are you a cultural conservative or are you a cultural progressive? Identity becomes a lot more important. Are you open to multiculturalism or do you have sort of a, a narrow ethnically defined definition of what it means to be British or American or Polish? This becomes sort of the new currency of this new political realm. And I argue that punk is part of and contributes to this change by uh, provoking the culture wars that really take off in the 1970s with punk uh, and debates in, you know, in the higher, higher government as well as in society before becoming more broadly known uh, in the 1980s. So the, the, the relevance today uh, of the fact that the working class today is no, is no longer reliably associated with the left. Um, that race and gender are are those are the currency of politics today. That grows a lot um, out of punk in the 1970s and 80s. It has earlier roots as well, and there are other things contributing to it, of course. Um, but but I argue that that um, part a major part of understanding punk is connecting it to those larger um, larger developments. Finally, uh, I, I would point to uh, style. Um, punk had such a radical impact on style, on music, on fashion, that today it's, it's impossible to imagine what, um, what the world would look like without punk. Um, so we still see punk styles cycling annually through fashion in one form or another. If you go out into the street today, you see torn jeans, skinny jeans. Uh, these are things that would, not, um, that would not have the currency that they do today without punk. I would also point to the, the DIY, do-it-yourself aesthetic, uh, to, to connect back to Kevin Dunn again. DIY, of course, existed before punk, but punk popularizes it and really makes do-it-yourself a way of getting from your bedroom to the mass music industry in a way that hadn't really been possible before. Today, when you look at what, uh, what musicians are able to do, individuals using their personal computers to create music, to publicize it, to share it all over the internet, that sort of from you know, DIY, from bedroom to global community is something that, uh, that really develops with punk and has sort of reached uh, a, an even broader conclusion today. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways we have punk to, to thank for that reality.
So we've been taken through this history of the spreading of punk in the 70s and 80s and seeing the Cold War as this important backdrop and a central part to the spreading of punk. But we also wanted to look at other, perhaps more unexpected places where punk has spread. While we were researching cases to explore for the episode, one thing kept coming up that was actually quite annoying. And it was that all these media outlets that were talking about places like Indonesia or China or Iran, which is the country that we'll go on to talk about, whenever they talked about the, the punk movement or the underground music scenes in these countries more generally, they kept talking about it in this extremely sensationalized and clickbaity kind of way that took away all the nuance of the local music scenes. And it was like they were always very politically charged. And well, it just didn't seem like it was really capturing the nuances of what people actually stood for. And today we're talking with Teresa Stewart, who is a musicologist of popular music and youth identity in Iran. And a lot of her research has been about how the West has portrayed the underground music scene in Iran and how in a lot of cases, it actually hasn't been accurate of how people actually see themselves within these movements in the country. Thank you for talking to us about this topic, Teresa. Can you take us through the origins of the underground music scene in Iran? Why did it form and who are the people that are part of it? So in order to understand um, how the scene formed, we have to go back before the revolution to the 60s and 70s. And, and this was a time when, when music and the arts were flourishing. I mean, this, there was a lot of freedom and creativity for popular music. And you had artists that were experimenting with all kinds of genres, whether it was pop or jazz or blues or funk, rock. And uh, they were recording in a number of languages too, not just Farsi, and combining these Western influences with Arab and Turkish influences and obviously Iranian uh, rhythms and instrumentation too. So artists like Gugush and um, Dariush and Yagmai, these are you know, artists that kind of, they had the freedom to be chameleons in a way. Because um, they could they could experiment in any way that um, they chose. So uh, when the revolution began, and I guess you could say it began really in 1977, just on a small scale of protests. Once Khomeini took over and gained power, he implemented his cultural revolution, and this was to wipe clean all the Western influences that uh, he saw as corrupting. Iranian youth, um, taking them away from their moral obligations and their Islamic identity. Uh, so many artists went into hiding and silenced themselves, or if they were able to, they, they fled the country. The Cultural Revolution implemented an initial ban on all music. And this probably lasted two to three years. Um, before music was reintroduced. But when it was reintroduced, it came in the form of mostly it was folk and traditional forms. Then eventually Persian classical music, which is the art music in Iran. Popular music pretty much was banned, continued to be banned until the 1990s. And then they started allowing some exceptions. So once pop re-entered the mainstream, 
it gave some artists hope to uh, to create music, but they had to do so under really strict guidelines. So now you had to um, have your music approved by a series of committees under the um, Ministry of Cultural and Islamic Guidance. That's what the Ministry of Culture and Art became. And they look at lyrical content, they look at the style of the music, they look at what instruments are used, they, they try to determine the intent behind the music. And this is with really unpredictable results, I have to say. The censorship is not a, a black and white kind of process. So because of these difficult restrictions, and not to mention that um, trying to gain these permits can be really costly, they, they're expensive for musicians. Um, that meant that many musicians started looking for alternate ways to make music. And that's how the underground was born, was just making music in private spaces, whether it's in bedrooms or um, basements or um, in parks, private parties, you know, anywhere away from the watchful eye of authorities. Um, so you ask the, who are the people that make up this underground scene? And typically these are middle and upper class youth. And I'm kind of drawing attention to this because I think that we like to sometimes think of countercultural movements or grassroots movements as being from um, disadvantaged or economically disenfranchised youth. And this isn't necessarily the case for Iranian youth because in order to make this music, especially today, and especially in the 21st century, it's necessary to have the access to the internet, first of all, something we take for granted, uh, and the access to the recording equipment and the editing software. And, and musical instruments are very expensive too. It's not like uh, in the West where it isn't too hard to find a cheap guitar and um, just teach yourself. So, so this is music that is actually made by slightly more upper class um, participants. And um, they still risk a lot of uncertainty, uh, of course, by doing this. I mean, what they do share in common with countercultural movements in the West is that they have a limited voice against authority. So they do still um, risk not only being fined, but arrest or beatings or, or, or worse. It's, again, very unpredictable what the punishment may be. And so, Teresa, you mentioned that people meet up in parks and in people's homes for these gigs and, and concerts. Could you tell us a bit more about the scene? You know, what is it like? Where else do people meet? And, and how do other people in Iranian society view the underground music scene? Absolutely. Um, so this is this is where we should examine the term underground and that that label, because it's in some ways a misleading term of for lack of a better term, we use it to describe all this unofficial music. And it literally means that this music has to be underground. Um, as in, you know, it's not just uh, this kind of metaphor for these countercultural movements, but in Farsi, it's referred to as zirzamini, which means basement. And it means it's referring to the literal space that it takes place. So. The scene you know, started in the private spaces of 
uh, bedrooms. I mentioned parks because a lot of hip hop musicians started in parks with rap battles and then these, the spread through word of mouth and then it would happen at private gatherings. But when the internet became increasingly more accessible for these middle and upper class youth and in later in the 90s and then early 2000s, all this music kind of shifted to an online presence. And so most of it really lives on the internet. Um, these uh, underground musicians actually become quite well known. They become these virtual celebrities. And so that's another reason you could say why the label of underground is a bit of a misnomer as well, because uh, we tend to think of underground as being independent and, and alternative and not as well known. But many of these artists, they are well known in um, just young uh, circles. It is played at private parties still, um, and it is spread that way. Uh, but most of it, I would say, is spread through social media, through bypassing internet filters. Um, through DJs picking it up in, in neighboring countries where they can play it in clubs. And then uh, these Iranian musicians can gain fame outside of Iran that way. Almost like going on tour without actually being <laughs> out of the country. So, uh, so it's kind of a complicated thing. It's a lot of youth, are, they still go to gatherings and they find out about this again, through these secret invites that are, that are passed around, circulated online. Um, but I'd say the majority of the music is listened to on personal devices and computers and phones. Listening is just as much of, as an illegal activity as participating in the actual music making. So whereabouts does the fame concentrate? Are there particular countries where the underground scene is becoming popular? Or is it more of a demographic thing where, say, Iranians living outside of Iran are the ones who are popularizing Iranian underground music outside the country? That's, you, you hit it on the, on the head there, um, that it it's generally is in areas that have large Iranian diaspora communities. So in terms of in the region, I would say that doesn't necessarily apply that there are people in Turkey, for instance, that in clubs in Turkey that play Iranian music, and it might not necessarily be because there are Iranians there. Um, so I think it's a little bit different within the Middle East itself. But when you start to see how this music travels outside and becomes popular in the West, it generally is concentrated in those Iranian communities like in um, Los Angeles always being the biggest diaspora community uh, outside of Iran. And uh, Toronto is another big one, New York, uh, London too. And anywhere there, there's these concentrations of, of uh, Iranians who have left and they want to feel still connected to what's happening back home. And Teresa, going back to this idea of Western media portrayals, 
In your research, you observed that a lot of these portrayals were projecting their own meaning and politics onto Iran's underground scene. Could you run us through what this portrayal has been and, and how it's been mistaken? Yes, so the, uh, yeah, I mentioned that the term underground can be um, a problematic label, and that is a label that really was created by the Western media, and that's what we would uh, typically see in headlines. One of the big problems with this label of underground and something that the Western media does is then they end up conflating so many different types of music, different genres, different ways of approaching genres. They tie it all into just one box, which is underground. So using that term tends to ignore just the diversity that is actually in the underground scene. So if we look at it more as the term is an underground space, um, then you know we can see that that it's really a term for just any unofficial music, any music that doesn't receive approval from authorities. Um, and this is not just, you know, heavy metal and hip hop and like punk, I would say would be the, the three of the genres that are most targeted, the, the ones that are, um, have the least chance of being approved, but it's not limited just to those genres. It could be pop that seems really generic, that you think is really um, unoffensive, or it could be jazz, it could be even some Persian classical musicians are not able for whatever reason to gain permits. So all of this makes up the underground and that's uh, what we don't really see in reports about the underground is that it, we tend to kind of hear about it as just one giant sort of pool of resistance music. So it's typical to see headlines like uh, Rage Against the Regime. That was one, um, Rage Against the Regime was one popular headline or spins off of that or um, what life as an illegal rock star. Uh, so the emphasis is all on that, the illegal activity and the danger behind it. And it, this even extends to articles or news stories that talk about diaspora musicians, because they will focus on um, the fact that they're immigrant rockers that have left Iran, kind of fleeing for you know, the safety of their own lives. And, and sometimes I've found that when you actually look at the musicians they're talking about, they are Iranian-American musicians or Iranian-British musicians, sometimes even born outside of Iran, uh, but yet they still are called immigrant rockers and, uh, and placed in that same kind of subversive uh, category. Um, so on one hand, it conflates all of these different styles of music into one. On the other hand, it politicizes the music and ignores the actual music making that's happening. So especially when it comes to female musicians like uh, Moral uh, Afsharian and Salome MC, you know, they often ha have publicity drawn towards them because they just happen to be women. And the focus is on uh, women that are making music uh, in a country that where the female singing voice is banned. 
And many of these artists, when you talk to them and ask them questions about their actual music, um, they are much more excited to answer that. And they often will say, you know, they're, they're tired of, of not having their music looked at for the quality and the creativity and the artistry behind it. Um, that they're not just rebels and revolutionaries. Um, in, and many, in many cases, uh, this isn't the focus of their music at all, that they are actually trying to experiment and do something that's aesthetically uh, unique and, and different. So it, it definitely neglects to give credit to the creative work of musicians that are trying to cultivate their own voice. From a music critic's point of view, it also just ignores quality in general. So no matter how creative um, or interesting or how derivative um, the music is or mundane, it doesn't seem to matter in many of these stories that we hear in the Western media because it gets lumped into one narrative. So that, you know, it ends up being portrayed as, as dangerous, exciting um, music. It, it makes a good headline in the end. So, so far you've talked to us about the importance of the diaspora in the listenership and popularizing of the underground music in Iran. What other role has the diaspora played with the underground scene? Uh, yes, um, and I'm glad that you asked that question because the role of the diaspora just can't be overemphasized, uh, especially in the last decade. Um, many of the musicians who helped start the underground spaces, um, they've left Iran. And sometimes it's been by choice. Um, sometimes they were on tour uh, in the West and then they just stayed abroad. Or sometimes they actually did, you know, fear for their safety and uh, didn't feel like they had to, could return. Um, but now that they're making music in these new environments, it's adding new dimensions to their art and they will often add these musical commentaries in a way on what it's like to be an immigrant musician away from home. Um, so you have bands like 127, which last I checked, they were based in Portland, um, but they take these Iranian percussive and rhythmic elements and they combine them with jazz and folk and pop and funk and lots of things that they hear where they are now. Um, Kiosk does the same. They're based in kind of New York and Toronto, and they use blues and jazz uh, in their rock. And both bands use now a mixture of Farsi and English. Uh, so they're kind of bridging this gap between home and homeland. And Namju, it's the last uh, name I'll mention, Mohsen Namju is a phenomenal folk singer-songwriter who uh, every time he has moved, his music sort of transformed. So whether it's California, New York, or, or the places in between, you know, he stays true to his Iranian roots uh, with the instrumentation and vocal styles that he plays with, but, but he also incorporates new influences from where he's currently based. So on one hand, the diaspora influences the, the music in, in a creative way. What's really fascinating is the dialogue between home and homeland. 
um, home being the new home that they musicians find themselves in the diaspora and then homeland being Iran, uh, that there's this symbiotic relationship and it's shifted over the years. So initially it was American and British music mostly that was shaping Iranian popular music and it started as an imitation of these sounds that were heard on like bootleg recordings, cassettes being smuggled in. And then once musicians learned to make their own music, then the music became a hybrid of Western and Iranian elements. And then it spread to the diaspora that way uh, from the homeland and it started to connect those in the diaspora back to the home that they had left. And now, as many of these musicians that started the scene are in the diaspora have left, now their music is going back to home, homeland, going back to Iran via the internet mostly, but they are now inspiring now a younger group of um, younger generation of musicians yet again. So I, I really think that musicians in the diaspora now have an even more powerful voice and a role to play in inspiring young Iranians back home. When we started the episode and the research for it, I didn't realize that we were going to touch on so many themes of, of migration. I mean, looking at how this immigrant identity was really important towards the personal lives of, of the pioneers of punk. And then again, how important the diaspora has been in what Teresa was talking about. And more generally, how all these networks of artists and musicians across the world made it possible to spread the ideas and, and the concept of punk across all kinds of boundaries. And I think what's really cool about punk is that it's bigger than any one particular issue or any particular point in time. And so even now, some 45, 50 years on from when the movement started, punk can still resonate with us. Thank you, Teresa Stewart, Raymond Patton, and Kevin Dunn for sharing with us all of your insights and knowledge to help us explore punk so thoroughly. And Thank you to Kevin's band, the Sirachachas, for allowing us to use their music during the course of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.